Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Back in November, as we were working our way through the Gospel of John, we began to sort of look in on Jesus' conversation with this woman from Samaria at the well as he spoke to her of her greatest need. And what he identified and what he told her her greatest need was, was to drink the water of life that only he can give. And before she can understand her need for the water of life, she needs to see that she has an issue that needs to be dealt with. And it's the issue of sin. And it's an issue that all of us have in our lives. And it's, all of a, it's an issue that all of us need to know how to approach if we're going to ever share the gospel with somebody else. And so let's see how Jesus approaches this question. How do you address the subject of sin? And we'll begin in verse 16. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our God, just as this woman perceived that Jesus was a prophet and not just an average man, would you persuade and convince us as well that you are right and that we are as wrong as can be? Convince us through the scriptures by means of your spirit that we need what only you can provide. Help us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most important periods in all of Christian history, and I would suggest one that doesn't get a lot of attention from Christians, is the second century of the church. Uh, And the reason for this is that during the second century, it was very painfully obvious that Christians were not in a place of power. Uh, Christians were not respected by the social elites. Christians were regarded as being foolish people who had very poor judgment to be going to church or have anything to do with this sect called Christianity. And in the second century, if it was discovered you were a Christian, you were considered at the margins of society. Um, Those who made the laws in Rome, for instance, did not seek the advice of Christians. And there was a very simple reason why. Not only were Christians seen as fools, um, they were regarded as stupid, and they were especially seen as being disloyal to the republic. And so people at the culture in large didn't, at large, not only did they not respect Christians, but part of the reason for that was they really didn't know what Christians believe, and they really didn't know what Christians taught. What they did know was what the people around them said about Christians. 
And so in the second century, and I think you'll see that this is not so different from today. In the second century, people didn't have firsthand knowledge of Christians. Uh, Most people in the Roman Empire had not been to a Christian worship service, for example. And so they didn't know what Christians believed. They didn't know what Christians taught. But they did know that they did not like them. Now, there were, some, there were some stories that they would tell one another about Christians that would certainly spread, that certainly got some traction. One story was that Christians were cannibals. Why were they cannibals? Because, so the story goes, Christians eat the body and blood of Jesus, so they must be cannibals if they eat this man's body and his blood. Uh, there was also a rumor that went around that Christians were incestuous. And, of course, why was that? Well, it was because husbands and wives called one another brother and sister. And you could see why that misunderstanding would happen if they never came to your worship services, but they talked about eating the body and blood. And if they talked about being married to their brother and sister, that you could see how that might spread. And so in the second century, if you were a Christian, it cost you something. It cost you something to be a Christian. You did not become a part of the church because there was some sort of social advancement attached to it. You went to church and you were baptized because you really believed. And because your family were real believers. And because your parents raised you up to believe this way and to know that this was true. That's why you went to church. And we are at this moment. 2019. Almost 2020. Transitioning out of a cultural period where it used to benefit you to be a church-going person. It used to have, there used to be social advantages to being a church-going person. If you wanted to run for office, public office, you had to be a member of a church. Um, it used to be a given that, that while you and your neighbor might live different lifestyles, you both at least had a common belief system. You had a, a notion of right and wrong that you shared together. And that time of transition in the South is happening. It's already happened on the West Coast. It's already happened in the Northeast and much of the East Coast as well. And it is happening in the South as well. Part of the reason for that has nothing to do with regionalism, has nothing to do with things spreading. It has everything to do with the Internet. Because now it doesn't matter if you live in the Northwest or the Southwest or the Northeast or in the southeast like we do. It doesn't matter where you live now because ideas are disseminated regardless of your geography. And so what's happening now is that we as Christians living in the south are entering a time, once again, that is not unfamiliar to the church, that Christians are regarded as backward and ignorant. Now the reason I say this is not because I'm interested in creating a victim mentality. That is not good for the church. It's not good for Christians to have a victim mentality. And in Scripture, you never see the writers of the text of Scripture. You never see the people who are suffering adopt a victim mentality where they guilt the others for dominating over them or something like that. That is not why I say those things. The reason I say these things is because we need to get out of our heads that there are culture wars going on. The culture war is over. The culture war is done. All that has to happen now is for all of these things to play out and settle out where they really are. Christians have lost the culture war. And we are losing the culture war if there is one still going on. And it's only a matter of time before we are in the exquisitely minor minority. There is no question in my mind, the model for us as the church is the second century. 
The second century church is the model of how we live faithfully in this world in spite of being very much on the wrong side of the culture. What are the implications of this? Let's say I'm right. Let's say I'm not being pessimistic. Let's say I'm just being realistic. And that's always what pessimists say they are. They just say they're being realistic. What's the implication of that? Part of what it means is that within the next 10 to 20 years, here's what happens. If you meet a high schooler, they are statistically more likely to have never been to church, to have no idea what Christians believe. Um, If you meet a high schooler in another 10 years, in fact, you might even say today, in fact, there's probably high school teachers that would tell you that we're already there. But statistically speaking, when you meet a high schooler 10 years from now, they will not only have never been to a church service and not know what Christians believe, they wouldn't even be able to give you a definition of God. They wouldn't even be able to tell you what is meant when people use the word God. Um, Now, just like in the second century, they will have lots of opinions about Christians And they will have lots of things that they are told about Christians. Very few of them gained through firsthand knowledge or going to a Christian service or going to a worship service or anything like that. And this is very key. This is very key. Those same people, in fact, probably high schoolers and and, and older now, if you meet them, they are almost certainly bound to hold moral positions that they were not argued into, but that they hold because of a matter of opinion or preference, and when they look at you and me, they think that's how we arrived at our moral positions as well. Which is why if you believe something is wrong, they equate it to being bigotry. Because they think you must have a preference in here that says that something is wrong that they think is good. So there's very different ways of arriving at questions of right and wrong. Now here's the other thing I want to say, and I want to be very clear about this. This is not an issue with millennials. This is not a a situation where millennials get picked on. I'm on the border of being a millennial, but I never claim to be. I I claim to be Gen X, even though I probably neither. Uh, But this is not an issue with millennials, and I want to I want to explain why. We're going to get to the, the actual text in a moment. The younger generation is living out what it was taught by the older generation in schools. And in the entertainment, who was in charge of the schools and who was in charge of the entertainment culture that brought us to the place where we are at and that the millennial generation were digesting the stuff that they were producing? It was the older generation. It was the boomers. It was the Gen Xers. So nobody is faultless in the situation where we've gotten to this place in the culture where we find ourselves. This is not an issue where a situation I don't think it's helpful for us to do generational picking on of one another. Not only that. But actually, you find that the older generation, as it sees what the younger generation believes and thinks, is willing to accommodate itself. And so you will find parents and grandparents who once held moral positions happily switching their views when they realize they're in the minority now. And so this is not an issue just of generational conflict. Um, None of this is new. None of this is cutting edge. None of this is surprising, right? The, the cultural revolutions that are underway uh, are thought by, the, by their advocates to be progressive, right? We're moving forward. But in fact, it's actually the opposite because we are going back in time. And we're going back to the second century. And we're going back to the time when Christians were at the margins. We as Christians are going back to being seen as weirdos. The question is this. Are we as a church ready? Are you ready to be different? Are you ready to be a weirdo? Are you ready to be an outcast? 
I can think of very few things that the church needs at this moment to be, be equipped to deal with in such a time than with the question of how do you talk about the issue of sin? Because at the end of the day, our beliefs about sin are the very thing that make us so very odd and strange to the world around us. The question is, how do you talk about that? Talking about sin is delicate, it's difficult, it's not always comfortable. But here's the simple question for us today. How does Jesus do it? Jesus talks about sin today with this woman, and he does it in a way that doesn't shut down the conversation. How do we talk about this very thing that is going to be the focal point of why we are so despised by the world around us? And how can we make sure that we're despised for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons? Well, Jesus does three things this morning. First, he regards sin. Right? He raises the issue of sin. He notices sin. Sin is something that's in his periphery. It's something he has an understanding of. Second, Jesus rebuts sin. Right? He doesn't act like sin doesn't matter. He doesn't act like it's not an issue. And then finally, we see that Jesus removes sin. He doesn't talk, just talk about sin, but he specifically acts to actually deal with it. So how does he do that? First, he regards sin. Now, we are stepping into the middle of this conversation between Jesus and this woman this morning. But when he asks her to get her husband, what he does is he, he forces her to bring her own sinful living situation into the conversation. But, but notice this. He's able to do this because he's given special knowledge. He has some understanding of this woman, of her life, of where she comes from already. And, and he, that's because he has the spirit. So even in this moment, we learn something about Jesus here. We learn that Jesus has the Spirit without measure, that the Spirit gives him and says things to him that in his human nature he would never know and never have access to. Jesus ministers through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in this moment, we learn something about Jesus, but I want you to notice this. It also shows us something about God. And this is a general truth about God, and it's so simple. You know it already. But God knows our sin. And that's what we learn here. God knows our sin. He knows, he knows everything. He knows it perfectly. You don't have a word or a thought or an action that God has ever not noticed. He's noticed everything. And you just think about how your sins have laid upon one another and compounded upon one another uh, just over the last year. Think of this. 12 months in the year. Imagine this. Imagine that you commit only three sins a day. Let's say you're a really, really saintly person and you only commit three sins a day. Multiply that times 365 days a year and you have over a thousand sins a year. Just in this last year, 2019. And let's be honest, we're probably way past a thousand sins in each of our lives over this last year. Imagine you live and you sin at that rate for 75 years. Imagine this. You stand before the throne of God and you have to answer for 75,000 sins. And we know that number's higher than that. Just imagine how many of our secret thoughts, our schemes, our secret actions, 
our broken commandments that we see all around us and that we see even just in our own lives. And, and each of them is not just a violation of some abstract law that somebody made up just to keep us busy on our toes. You know, these are all violations of the, the very character and truth of who God is. And so our sins aren't even just little rule breakings, but they're, but they're capital offenses against the God of the universe. And I, I just want you to see this. I don't say this so that I can create the biggest burden of guilt that you've ever felt in your entire life. The point is this. Your sin matters to God and it is known to God. And the reason that your sin matters to God is because his honor matters to him. Every single one of our sins, we're spitting in his face and saying that he isn't enough and that we're more important than he is. It's a terrible offense against God when we sin. And for many of us, we, we don't have an issue with the idea. We don't have an issue with the sense uh, of sin. But how to respond to sin is the deeper puzzle, right? Because sin is an area where I think most Christians fall into one of two extremes. Um, the one extreme is maybe, sin, maybe talking about sin makes us feel squeamish. We hate it, right? Or maybe on the other hand, we're a little too comfortable talking about it. You could be one of two extremes there. Uh, people who are made squeamish talking about sin uh, tend to have their ear to the culture. They tend to, to maybe even be desensitized. You know, we're so used to hearing about other people's sin. We're so used to seeing sins even joked about and jested about in movies and TV shows and, and uh, just in stories and novels and in our everyday life. And when we talk to our neighbors and when we talk to our friends, we're so surrounded by it. We're like a fish swimming in water now and we almost don't even know what water is. That's what sin is like for us. And I think we can get so squeamish about talking about sin because we've, in many cases, we've so gotten used to the notion of sin that it, we just wonder, why are you making a big deal about this, right? And, and so when we, when we talk to somebody about sin, there's this temptation to pull back and to lighten up and to sort of try to smooth things over because we know that's what the world wants us to be like, you know. Um, we want them to think that, you know, we may be Christians, but we're not those kind of Christians. We're not those mean kind of Christians, you know. I think there's a word of encouragement here from Jesus. Because think about what happens with Jesus and this woman. He's, he's here with this woman at this well. Jesus knows her, her past, and he knows this. Bringing up her past is not going to make her feel good. What do you think the chances are that bringing up her marital situation at the moment is going to make her feel happy? It's not. Like Jesus knows this. And, and surely Jesus has this moment where he thinks, you know, if I don't talk about this marriage situation, if I don't talk about the sexual sin in her life, she's going to like me more. And maybe we'll even have a longer conversation than, than if I bring this issue up. You know, you could just imagine this temptation. Hebrews tells us Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. It's perfectly possible that Jesus thought to himself, you know what? Softening this issue up will make this conversation go more smoothly. And yet Jesus doesn't do that. He raises the issue of sin. He has regard for her sin. Now the question is why? The answer is because it's what's best for her. Whether he talks to her about it or not, 
Her life is suffering because of her sin. Whether they talk about it or not, sin is a reality in this woman's life. Um, Because the reality is this, the, the pain in her life exists in part because these sexual liaisons in her life have not made her happy. And they haven't brought flourishing to her and they haven't brought the living water that she really wanted and that she's still looking for. And this is really important for us to know. Refusing to talk about sin doesn't take away sin. Refusing to talk about sin doesn't take away the consequences of sin. Um, Refusing to talk about sin doesn't take away the guilt of sin. I listened to a podcast. It was, I think, a week or two ago. And one of the people on the podcast said, I feel guilty all the time. It wasn't a religious podcast at all. It was like a technology podcast. And one of the the people on the podcast said, I feel guilty all the time. I don't even know why. They have an understanding of the guilt of sin and absolutely no language to express why they feel guilty, where the guilt comes from, or what can be done about that sense of guilt. And and I would suggest this. As our culture gets more and more allergic to talking about sin, the more and more discussions get swept under the rug, the more the fruit of sin is still going to stick around and it's still going to be in people's lives they're just going to lose the vocabulary to address it. How do I talk about the way I feel or why I feel so wrong? We as a society are less judgmental than ever, right? Supposedly, we're less judgmental, but, but listen, marriages aren't any stronger for it. We're less likely to say there's a such thing as sexual sin, but guess what? According to the CDC two months ago, the rate of sexually transmitted diseases has actually risen sharply in the course of just one year. We're not talking about sexual sin anymore. Why aren't these problems going away? It's because refusing to talk about these things doesn't make them go away. There is an objective reality and truth to these things, whether we are squeamish to talk about it or not. Being squeamish about confronting or talking about about sin does nothing except rob our neighbor of being able to see the guilt and destruction that sin brings. And the result is a generation that feels more guilty than ever and no longer has the language to express why they feel that way. So as I say, many Christians are squeamish about talking about sin, but as we see, all that does is reinforce the fantasy that sin isn't real and it doesn't matter. But it doesn't deal with the reality of sin and what it does in people's lives. So we may be squeamish on the one hand. On the other hand, Some Christians are at the opposite end of things. They they talk about sin all the time. But here's the catch about the opposite end of the spectrum. It is always other people's sin that they're comfortable talking about. People who talk about sin are usually in the position of accuser rather than in the position of confessor. And maybe you've seen this in your own life. Maybe you even see it in your own heart. Um, I mean, you watch the news, you hear a news story about murder, and you think to yourself, it's a shame people are this way. And then what's the next thought? Well, I'm really glad I've never murdered anybody. Um, Or maybe uh, depending on where you are, uh, how you think about the Sabbath, you know, if you have any impulses like me, maybe you see somebody going into a restaurant on Sunday and you wonder, wonder why, gee, I wonder why they don't love the Lord as much as other people do. Um, or maybe you have unmarried neighbors who are, who are living together. And what do we say to ourselves, maybe to our spouse? We say, this is why our culture is in trouble or 
something like that. Now, all of these things may be true and all of these things may be real, but this is the, the point. Most Christians are very skilled at discussing sin if it is someone else's sin. And yet Jesus reminds us we should be skilled at confronting our own sin first. If you're grieved by the sin of the world, the sin of society and the negative changes of the world around you, are you first grieved at the hatred in your own heart already? Before you're troubled by everything you see around you, are you first troubled by, troubled by the way you use a sliding scale for your own sin? Everyone else's sin is tearing apart society, but, but my sin, eh, it's less of a problem. I can keep it under control, you know. Before all these other things, do you grieve? Do you weep for the many wicked things that you still tolerate within your own heart? Are you weeping for those things first? Jesus says in Matthew 7, 3, why do you notice the speck that's in your brother's eye? But you don't notice that log that is in your own eye. Notice the balance here. Jesus is not saying that your neighbor's speck in his eye doesn't matter. He's not saying that sin doesn't matter. He isn't saying that it's all relative. He is saying this thing in his eye is very real. It isn't imaginary. And yet, that recognition of your neighbor's sin must be tempered by something. And that thing that will temper our sense of our neighbor's sin is humility because of our own sin. There is a humility that comes from seeing your own heart and knowing your own heart whenever it comes to talking to another person about what's going on in their life. Jesus regards sin. He he sees it. He knows it. He raises the issue of this this morning first. But second, notice this also. Jesus rebuts sin. He, He confronts it. He deals with it. Uh, He's been speaking to this woman about living water. And then... Jesus invites her to get her husband, which forces her to admit she doesn't have one. Furthermore, she's living with a man who isn't her husband. And here's really the sin that comes to the surface. This is the sin that emerges from all of this. The biblical word for what this woman is doing is fornication. It's an old-fashioned term that, that we don't use it much today, I don't think, but it describes her situation very well. And by the way, depending on the generation that you're from, I think you might find this hard to believe. It's not, uh, I'm not exaggerating or anything like this, but as a Christian, you need to understand why fornication is a sin uh, because there are people who don't believe it's a sin and they don't understand why it would be a sin. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating. At Bellhaven, I was teaching this class last semester and this student after, uh, after class asked me, he said, is, is having sex before marriage a sin? And I was like, I kind of squinted at him and like looked at him. I was trying to see if he was messing with me, like trying to analyze him. Are you playing, on, playing a joke on me? And he wasn't. He just sincerely wanted an answer from me. And I thought, oh my, things have changed really fast that somebody who's in college comes from some kind of Christian background that he would go to a Christian college and yeah, he needs an answer to this question. Um, So it's just remarkable that we need to know why this is a sin. Think about this woman's case. In this woman's case, she has had sex without commitment and she has made a lifestyle of it. 
Um, In the Bible, sex is portrayed as a deep good. It is not a bad thing. It's something that's pleasant. It's something that's appropriate. It's something people had before the fall. Things that happened before the fall are not sin. And this happened before the fall. It was meant to be a part of how men and women are united to each other. And and it's inextricably bound up with the commitment of marriage. And, And that was the consistent teaching of Scripture. And Jesus acknowledges it. And so in Matthew 19, 5, Jesus says what? He says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and the two and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus is affirming the biblical teaching that one man and one woman are to be married together. And then at that point, they are to be one physical flesh union. So, so Jesus confronts the reality that this woman is very far from God in her life. But here is the thing. Without raising this, Jesus will not be able to break through to her greatest need. And, and, and I want you to hear this very, very clearly because there will be opportunities where people will ask you to share the gospel with them. I just talked to somebody just this last week over Christmas break. He had a nephew, wanted to know, how do I become a Christian? What's the gospel? All right, and I pray that, that, that you have opportunities like that in your life as well. But we cannot share the gospel with somebody without broaching the subject of sin. See, evangelism has to start with this realization that we have broken God's law, that this person has broken God's law, and that our own sin is what separates us from him. If sin isn't the problem, then why do you need a savior? So the question is, when we're confronted by God's holiness, what will we do? Will we admit our sin or will we try to defend ourselves and say, no, this was great, this was fine, this was appropriate, and come up with the justification that we can? Now, Jesus shows us how to to broach the subject here, and he does this with sensitivity. Notice how he makes her say it herself. He, He asks her a question, and he asks her in a way that sort of forces it to come from her mouth. He doesn't call her a name. He doesn't mock her. He isn't needlessly offensive. And and the reason is because he cares about this woman. He isn't performing for anybody. There's nobody else watching. I think part of the reason why social media is so bad for us is that we are always performing for our social group that we've chosen and that follows us, right? And so whenever we make a statement, what are we doing? We're posturing. We're letting everyone see what we think. We're persuading people as much as we can. Jesus is not doing anything like that here. This is a one-on-one situation. The only thing he cares about is her face-to-face. So why does he bring this issue up? Because he cares about her. He's ministering to her in a way that shows he really wants her to have a life change. He doesn't drive her away. He doesn't mock her. Instead, he gets to the heart of things. He confronts the sin. He rebuts the sin. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't reason it away. But he faces it full on in all of its ugliness and all of its destructiveness. And it has been destructive to this woman in her life. That's the second thing he does. He rebuts sin. But third, and this is so important. We have to end on this too. Jesus removes sin. Sharing the gospel with another person is not a matter of making them feel bad or making them feel guilty. Uh, In fact, I would feel terrible in this sermon if somebody had dropped dead right after I said you've sinned 75,000 times in your life by the age of 75. If you just dropped dead, I would feel very guilty because that 
message that I just gave you, that you have, that we would have sinned 75,000 times by the time you hit age 75 if you sin three times a day, I would feel very bad because what I just told you is not the gospel. The gospel is not you have sinned this year a thousand times. That is not the gospel. If you hear that, you haven't heard the gospel. Because making people feel guilty is not the goal of the Christian life, and it's not the purpose of evangelism. Um, If we as Christians are only known as people who condemn others, then that isn't good enough. Guilt is not the gospel. Sorrow for sin is not the gospel. Here's the gospel. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But here's the thing. The only person who can be justified is the person who knows that he needs to be justified. And the gospel is no good for a perfect person. If you're a perfect person, you can just leave. You don't even need to be here because the gospel's not for you. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for the thousand sins a year plus people. That's who the gospel's for. The question isn't whether or not we feel guilty. The question is not whether the people we're talking to are guilty. The question is, when you talk to people, do you only make them feel guilty? Then you're not sharing the gospel if you do. The real question is, do you show them Christ? If you only share judgment, then... You are not sharing the gospel. At best, at best, what you are sharing is moralism or works righteousness, okay? We have to be confronted with our sin. Without it, there's no beauty in the gospel. Without knowing our sin, we don't need the gospel. But the beauty of the gospel is that at our most vulnerable and needy moment, God steps in with this truth. I am for you. There is forgiveness, The world doesn't know how to find forgiveness. They feel guilty all the time. They don't know why. It is possible to confront others with their sin and and to do it in a a nasty way, an angry way, a condemning way, a judgmental way, a, a cruel way that tells this person, I hate you and wish you would go away or change. And it might be that we communicate with people that way, and that is a sin because it's all law. And no grace. The best model here is Jesus. How does Jesus confront this woman? He confronts his, this woman this way because he loves her. He, he doesn't con- confront her because he hates her. He's not interested in making her feel bad. Jesus' whole ministry was a ministry of forgiveness. His teaching, his life, his purpose, all of it, was to lay down his life for people who did not deserve it and only deserved condemnation. That's who he came for. That's why Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick. I hope you see yourself like that. I hope you see yourself as one of the sick people. I hope you see yourself in this woman's shoes this morning. I hope you see that you're like her. You have sin. You need forgiveness. Don't stand in judgment over her. Stand in solidarity with her and do what Jesus wants her to do. Drink of the living water. Admit who you've been. 
Admit who you are. Take hold of Christ. Become his disciple. Follow him forever. Your sin will be taken away forever. You'll never be condemned. And he will make you his child for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we need so much. We need to know how to speak to others about Christ, especially about their sin. We need to be sensitive. We need to be wise. Help us to know how to be firm and not to waver from what you've said, but help us also to know how to speak the truth in love to others. Even more, O oh God, help us to see our own heart, our own sin, and the ways we have failed. And in doing that, not only give us humility, but give us Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.